BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Ecology is the study of the relationships between living organisms, including humans like you and me and their physical environment. It seeks to understand the vital connections between plants and animals and the world around them. So why am I giving you a lesson on ecology in this episode of Weather Geeks? Well, what if I told you that a hurricane can have a large impact on our ecology? That's why my next guest, Dr. William McDowell from the University of New Hampshire, is here to teach us all about it. Unlike with flash flooding or storm surge, we may not know the direct impacts a storm has on our ecosystem until we are many months or even years down the road. Dr. McDowell, thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. Yes. Uh, you know, one of the things we like to do on Weather Geeks is uh, it's not the typical talking about storms and chasing and forecast all of the time. We go in every nook and cranny of weather and climate. And so I think this is so fascinating. Let me give people a little of your background before we dive in. Uh, at the University of New Hampshire, you're a professor of natural resources and the environment, where you focus on all kinds of big fancy terms that we'll hope to, to discuss today, biogeochemical cycles and streams, forests and watersheds, uh, long-term changes in water quality of ecosystems. And your long-term goal has been to understand the impact of people on water quality, especially the nitrogen cycle. You're a member of EPSCOR at UNH, uh, and you have many other things that you're involved in that we'll talk about. Has a PhD in ecology from Cornell University and a bachelor's in biological and biomedical science from Amherst College. And me being a professor at the University of Georgia, I'm certainly familiar with ecology, given that we have a school of ecology uh, founded by, I guess, uh, Eugene Odom, who's a key figure in modern ecology. So before we go anywhere, the first thing I like to ask my guest, how'd you get into ecology? Was it something as a, as a kid, something that sparked your interest? Tell us all about what took you down that path. Oh, for sure. Uh all about what I love to do uh, as a kid and what I still love to do, which is to go out into the, into the world around us. And um, I just found myself always gravitating towards uh, streams, rivers, lakes, water bodies of any sort. Um, my mother tells me the first time they took me to the ocean, I just started walking right in and I was going to keep going. <laughs> and so, uh, it really stems from that. I tell people that I, you know, I love to mess around in streams when I was a kid and I never stopped. You know, it's interesting because I was, I was telling my son that we, we went up to um, an, a waterfall here in North Georgia called Amicalola Falls. And as we were walking up to the falls, I, I noticed the stream and I was just sharing with my 13 year old son how fascinated I was about with streams and how I used to go explore streams and look for minnows and crawdads and look at how the, the water was flowing around rocks in the, in the stream. So it's really fascinating. So I resonate with that. I ended up going into meteorology, but the, the natural world has always been a fascination for me. Before we get into the really cool sort of science of what you do, tell us a little bit about your department at UNH and the Water Quality Analysis Laboratory and other observatories you're involved in there. We just want to get a backdrop of what you do and where. 
Sure. Um, basically, uh, at my department in uh, at UNH really spans a full range of environmental uh, issues. So we have um, ecologists, other biological scientists, uh, like water, uh, like wild wildlife biologists, and then we also have um, social scientists people who analyze policy or environmental economics. So we have a, a very wide range of disciplines and um, that's been central uh, to my um, development as a scientist and my approach to science is to bring in a, a wide range of disciplines because so many issues in the world around us um, can't be resolved, can't be fully understood unless we cut across the classic disciplines like physics as a box, chemistry, biology, and in fact, the natural world involves interactions among all those um, sciences, all those processes. And so uh, my career has really taken that um, from uh, the beginning of my career. Uh, I've always tried to incorporate multiple disciplines and multiple ways to assess a problem. So I've worked with soil scientists and hydrologists and atmospheric scientists throughout my career. And a central element of that has been to work in the observatory or long-term platform kind of research. So um, I uh, got my PhD at a, a one of the founding uh, long-term ecological observatories in the in the US and one of the foremost in the world, the Hubbard Brook Experimental Forest here in New Hampshire. And I continue to work uh, some in the at, at that site. Um, but then I've also um, worked for decades uh, with the University of Puerto Rico and an observatory um, there where we study the uh, tropical rainforest. And then I've also developed observatory um, locally in the coastal uh, New Hampshire streams and rivers with a special emphasis, a particular emphasis on how um, people and the human footprint in the landscape affects the water quality. Yeah, and you just mentioned Puerto Rico. I'm just curious because I have a colleague at the University of Georgia that's involved in the Lucio NSF uh, LTER, which is a long-term ecological research. Are you involved in that project? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I assume uh, my, right. my colleague was very strong colleagues. He's in my department with Tom Moat, who you may have come across. <laughs> <laughs> I may have come across. Uh, uh, absolutely. I know him uh, pretty well. And uh, he's uh, he hasn't been working there as long as I have. Um, but then he's younger than me, too. Uh, no, well, yeah, I think but, he, uh, he's I been a very significant addition to our team. It's been great to have his background, his view on things, uh, really knowing climate modeling well. Um, so yes, absolutely. That's the same project that I've been uh, working on since, well, before it started even as a formal project. Oh, sure. No, I think you're very, very similar. And for the listeners here, getting one of the things that I think listeners have told me about Weather Geeks is they feel like they're eavesdropping on scientists talking. So let me kind of talk about these LTERs for a second since I brought them up because the University of Georgia had a very long-term one up in Coweta, up in North Carolina mountains. And we also have one at the coast, uh, Georgia coast. So these long-term ecological research sites 
they're what they say, long-term, and they are in place to sort of monitor long-term changes in the ecological system of different types of ecosystems, if you will. So I just wanted to make sure when we're throwing around some of these terminologies here, the, the Weather Geeks listeners understand. Now, you mentioned Puerto Rico. Um, Let's just go there because this is weather geeks and people love hurricanes and love things like that. Uh, when Puerto Rico received a glancing blow from Hurricane Irma in 2017, it was shortly followed by the devastating direct hit of Hurricane Maria. Uh, how did those systems affect their ecosystems? Uh, and I know that you did some presentations at major science conferences like AGU, the American Geophysical Union. So tell us all about the ecosystem impacts of Maria and Irma on Puerto Rico. Sure, they're uh, really big. The impacts, um, just as you might expect with such powerful storms, the impacts are really large on, on the ecosystem. So the first and most obvious and um, to the people as who live on the island of Puerto Rico, as well as to the researchers who study the forests and the streams and the animals and plants, the, the biggest impact was all of a sudden our green island was brown. Um, and it was really striking and, and something that, that really uh, made people sad, you know, and sort of it just uneasy because, of course, as a tropical um, rainforest, it, it's always green. And so, so that's the big, um, most obvious change. And of course, this happens because all the leaves are blown off and branches are broken and trees are tipped over. And so the first most obvious impact of the hurricane is that um, we uh, see a lot of trees that are damaged. A lot of trees are going to die or uh, have since died. And then the rebirth process starts and not all the trees are killed and not all the animals are um, die in the storm and so things start to come back and um, my role in the project has been to really understand how the, the water quality the streams that drain the forest that's taken this major hit this major impact how the changes in the trees and their um, their their death and their regrowth, how that is reflected in the overall signal of the water quality that's coming out of the landscape and the streams. And so the rationale for this is that we think of the whole watershed as a study system. So it consists of inputs of rain and trees that the, the rain washes through the canopy and it goes into the soil and infiltrates into some shallow and some deep groundwater, and then it ends up in the stream. And depending on what's happening within the forest, as well as what goes on in the stream, we can see variation in stream chemistry, the signals, what's going on in the, in the forest. And so we see after the storm in the water, we see a big um, pulse of nitrate which is an important plant nutrient, a form of nitrogen. And that shows up in the streams for years. Um, and in one watershed, um, over a decade after um, previous storms, like Hurricane Georges in uh, 1998. So the impact of the hurricane is very immediate on the trees, and then they start to regrow. And then we see 
as the system reassembles, we see subsequent changes in the water chemistry that, that signal what's going on in the watershed, although we're not always sure <laughs> exactly what that signal means because it integrates everything that's going on in the watershed. So that's one of our challenges to understand what that signal means and, and then to study how it um, is transmitted downstream and potentially out in the ocean. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. And I'm speaking with Dr. William McDowell from the University of New Hampshire. And we're talking about something that is tailor-made for Weather Geeks. Let's just keep it real. Ecosystem impacts from hurricanes. I mean, again, we like to give you a broad view. I hope you're listening to Weather Geeks because you want to hear these sort of nooks and crannies of our science that you may not even think about. Now, you heard Dr. McDowell talk about nitrates and water quality. Let's go back and do a little 101 for our listeners because talk about, I mean, and I know that people remember the water cycle. We, we got it in fourth grade somewhere. Precipitation, condensation, runoff, infiltration, uh, all of those things that people remember, but they may not know about these biogeochemical cycles, particularly the nitrogen cycle. So give the listeners a 101 of what the nitrogen cycle is. And by the way, if they put fertilizer down on their lawn, they're probably impacting the nitrogen cycle some way. So talk about that. Sure. The nitrogen cycle is one of the most intriguing and complicated of the what we call the biogeochemical cycles on Earth. So there are um, over 100 different elements, if you remember your chemistry, on Earth. It's made up of individual uh, elements that can form uh, molecules, and then we use those molecules to build the machinery of life. So nitrogen is one of the uh, difficult-to-obtain essential elements uh, for life because it's in our proteins that are in our muscles, it's in many of our foods, and it's, it's necessary for all kinds of um, reactions inside plants, animals, microbes. So there's a lot of nitrogen 
in the atmosphere, it's mainly nitrogen, 78% nitrogen. But that nitrogen gas is not available for plants and animals to use. And the only way it becomes available is through a process called nitrogen fixation that occurs when microbes use a lot of energy and clever catalysts, enzymatic catalysts, to form nitrogen into new compounds, such as ammonium, which are then available, these new compounds are then available to the plants and animals and microbes on Earth. Now, you mentioned also the fertilizer impact, and that's a very real one and an important one. And we, the human society, we also use nitrogen a lot, and we are not quite as clever as the microbes. We use a lot of fossil fuel energy to do the same reaction, to take the nitrogen out of the atmosphere and put it in a form that plants and animals can use. Yeah, it's interesting because one of my sort of new hobbies in quarantine world from coronavirus is I started a garden uh, in my backyard. And so just this past weekend, I went to Home Depot or one of these uh, home stores, I can't remember which one actually, and I bought some compost because I didn't have time to make any. And I was looking at sort of Googling about mix of nitrogens and things that need to be going into the soil. So I'm, I'm learning a lot. I, I, I teach an urban climate class at the University of Georgia, Impacts of uh, Urbanization on Climate, and I talk about the nitrogen cycle. So I'm glad that you were able to give us this 101. Uh, over the last three decades, you and your colleagues, scientists, have been observing elevated nitrate levels in areas after being struck by a hurricane. Uh, what causes this to happen and what kind of impacts does that typically have? Right. Well, the uh, cause of this really appears to be the disruption to the trees and the, the cycle of nutrients that's driven by trees and microbes in the forest. And, and the observation, as you suggested, is that, well, as soon as the hurricane's done and within weeks we see nitrate levels increase in the stream, and they tend to be high until the canopy is fully um, green again and full of leaves. It's not the same trees necessarily. It's not the same, quite the same level of uh, plant biomass, the amount of plants growing, but it's greened up and then the nitrogen is um, also declining in the streams. And what we think is going on based on some actual experiments we've done where we simulate a hurricane as well as our observations after real hurricanes is that the we have two processes at work that result in the nitrogen ending up in the stream first um, we no longer after the hurricane we no longer have the uptake by the actively growing trees they've taken a big hit we know they've lost a lot of roots we've shown that their roots have died off after the hurricane it takes a while for them to get reestablished. And so nitrogen that's um, produced or made available by microbes, the trees might be trying to suck that right up, except they're really damaged and they're struggling to get going again. And so there's a sink there. There's, a, there's an uptake of nitrogen that's not occurring for the first year or so after the hurricane. And so in addition to having less uptake of nitrogen, we actually have a bigger production as well because the leaves and the branches and the wood 
they all rot and decompose away pretty quickly. It's a wet, warm environment. So they break down pretty quickly. And one of the end products of that breakdown is additional nitrogen that was stored in their tissues. And now because they're decomposing, that nitrogen is released. So we have both an increase in the supply of nitrogen and a decrease in the uptake of nitrogen. So we believe that's what's resulting in this flushing of nitrogen out through the system carried in the um, groundwater and on into the streams. And um, it, it, it then washes downstream. We're talking with Dr. Bill McDowell from the University of New Hampshire. And as I mentioned in the introduction, he's a member of EPSCoR at UNH, which stands for the Established Program to Simulate Stimulate Competitive Research. Give you a little background. Their mission is to advance uh, New Hampshire's competitiveness in science and engineering by strategically investing in research infrastructure, promoting education in STEM disciplines, and fostering partnerships with technology-based businesses. Dr. McDowell specifically works with aquatic sensor network ecosystems and society team and so where I want to go next we've been talking about some of the interesting research you've done in terms of ecosystems and tropical environments and hurricanes give us some insight into some of the tools that you use to observe these ecosystem uh, variables and changes I mean, are you primarily using what we call in science in situ sensors where you're sticking an instrument into the water for example are you using remote sensing like satellites or a combination of all or using models just Tell us about your tools. The tools we use are everyone that you've mentioned. And it's important to know that the um, fundamental tool for water chemistry, though, is uh, we simply take a sample of water in a clean container and we take it back to the lab. And so that's the fundamental way that we develop understanding over the last decades for what's in the water that we drink and the water that the in the river that the fish swim in and everywhere else. And so recently, however, in addition to taking these what we call discrete or grab samples, we've also in the community developed um, a number of sensors that can be deployed in the rivers and they get continuous real-time data. And this is what our project in New Hampshire that we've, you referred to, the EPSCOR Ecosystems and Society Project, that was built around, in, in my part of the project, we built it around the um, development of a sensor network that we um, continue to operate um, seven years after the initial award throughout the state of New Hampshire to understand how <clears throat> various factors drive um, stream chemistry. And so traditionally, in, or for decades in Puerto Rico, we take samples every week at um, its range from 8 to 11 different sites in the, in the rainforest. And so we take these samples, we analyze them in my water quality analysis laboratory at the University of New Hampshire, and then we develop a picture of what the water quality is like. Well, recently... Um, with support from the U.S. National Science Foundation, which is, um, you know, the, the source of the EPSCoR funding as well as uh, much basic science uh, funding in the U.S., we've been able to install sensors in Puerto Rico. And so we had them in the water for a year or so before the hurricane came in two different places. 
we had a sensor um, network uh, set up. And then they survived the hurricane, thankfully. Our engineering was good enough. And luckily, they made it through a pretty big storm. And now we see um, with unprecedented detail how the water chemistry changes over time, um, both before um, in the immediate aftermath of the hurricane and now um, a few years later. You know, I was thinking about Hurricane Michael, which impacted the panhandle of Florida recently, back in 2018, I believe, and lots of forestry uh, devastation there in the panhandle. I, I, I was thinking about just all of the sort of, sort of impacts of this type of work, because from what I understand, uh, it's not just the watersheds and the nitrates that's in uh, these increased nitrate levels can actually flow out the oceans too and have negative impacts on the oceans. How do they end up impacting the ocean? Well, that's a good question. And uh, it's one that I don't have the bandwidth, you know, to, I, I do a lot of different things, but that's not one of the things that I've tackled. And we know generally, um, globally, we know that um, coastal zones, near shore marine systems are very often um, affected by nitrogen and too much of a good thing, too much of a nutrient yields a lot of problems in these coastal environments where we have uh, excessive algal growth, the pea soup green that people don't want to swim in and they shouldn't swim in. And sometimes it even has toxins from some specific types of algae. And so what we, um, what we're afraid of is that the both the sediment and the nitrogen that come off the landscape after these devastating storms, you know, may impact the coastal zone. Um, uh, remote sensing does show the um, easily show the impacts of the sediment, and so we um, uh, we we should we would like to look at that in the future, and the um, questions about how the land in these small tropical islands like Puerto Rico is connected to the ocean. Those land-ocean connections are very quick. The pathways are short. And so the impacts are likely to be um, fairly quick. Uh, but at the same time, it's a big ocean, very deep off the island of Puerto Rico. Very quickly, um, we get to the Puerto Rico Trench just um, 10 miles or so off the shore of Puerto Rico, which is the second deepest um, ocean trench on the world. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued at scs dot georgetown dot edu slash podcast.
Ready to elevate your home? Picture this. Central heating, a cozy fireplace, or your dream walk-in closet. Build a backyard oasis, go green with solar panels, or start a business. It's all possible with Figure's home equity line of credit. Unlock up to $400,000. Apply online in five minutes. Funding in as little as five days. Head to figure.com and transform your home. Figure Lending LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. And I'm speaking with Dr. William McDowell from University of New Hampshire, who, small world, I learn, is a colleague or with one of my colleagues at UGA, Dr. Tom Mote. So shout out to Dr. Tom Mote. I know he'll be listening to this podcast at some point. Uh, uh, very distinguished climatologist in our field. So uh, shout out to Tom. I want to shift gears now, Bill. And I want to talk about some other work that you do. And you mentioned this a little bit. I mean, you've done work on algal blooms outside of the tropics, I think in the Great Lakes region. Uh, and I think some of the listeners may be familiar with these dead zones that appear in the Gulf of Mexico. Talk, talk to us about the science of all of that. The science is uh, really pretty well established for what controls algal growth. And ever since the 70s, it's been a, a topic of a lot of uh, investigation, discussion, some controversy over the years. Um, but basically, we know that if you give a, a water body too many nutrients, um, it, it responds, it changes. And it changes in ways that people often find um, bad. They find them to be bad. They, they are changed. There are changes in the fish, changes in the oxygen levels that support the fish, changes in the, uh, in the, the likelihood that anybody's going to want to swim in that body of water. And so the major nutrients that can limit algal growth are nitrogen and phosphorus. So of course, the nitrate that we talked about from the Puerto Rican rainforest example is one of the major forms of, nit of nitrogen that affects algal growth around the world. And so, for example, the dead zone in the Gulf and the algal blooms in the Great Lakes that you've mentioned are really major and obvious demonstrations of the importance of understanding these nitrogen and the, the cycling of nitrogen and phosphorus and the organic matter that the algae produce. So there's a little bit of a conundrum in there that would say, well, everybody knows that if they study a little science, you know that plants produce oxygen. So why does having too much plant life in a body of water give you low oxygen? Well, the issue is that the plants make oxygen from photosynthesis during photosynthesis. But then when they die, when an algal cell dies or a leaf falls to the forest floor and rots, that material that decomposes, it uses up oxygen. And so we can see cycles from day and night where at nighttime when the plants are not photosynthesizing, the, the algae in the lake aren't photosynthesizing, we can have really big declines in oxygen. And then often at the end of the season, after the algae stop growing and they fall to the bottom of the, the Gulf of Mexico or the bottom of the lake, they die and they rot and that consumes oxygen. And so all of a sudden there's 
too much oxygen being consumed by the microbes that break down things, and then too little being produced by the algae. So the net effect is oxygen gets so depleted, it gets so low that various, most organisms can't live there. And uh, then we get the noxious smells and everything else, too. Yeah, I think that, you know, one of the things I always like to get to in my own science or in outreach or in weather geeks is the so what. I think a lot of times people know we as scientists do this work and it may seem somewhat sort of disconnected. But I think you just talked about the so what's of why you want to really understand these things in marine ocean ecosystems, Great Lakes ecosystems and so forth, because people, industry interact at the at these water body interfaces. I want to get your thoughts now for this last segment. Now, again, we're talking with Dr. William McDowell from University of North New Hampshire. I want to get your thoughts because we did talk about the LTERs earlier. I want to get your general thoughts on why these long-term research projects are important, particularly in light of our changing climate and ecosystems. People may not understand. I, I, I often sort of, I step quickly on a soapbox before I hand it off to you. I, I often lament that the, the general public and perhaps policymakers at times can be very short-sighted about what science and R&D is about. Uh, they, they know they have an iPhone or, they, or, an, or a Samsung phone. They know that they have GPS in their car, they know that they had a successful medical procedure, but they don't think about the long-term research and development that led to that. I'm, I'm often quoted as saying, a lot of the things we benefit from in society don't come poof from the science fairy. They've come from years of research and development. So talk about philosophically why the National Science Foundation and others invest in these long-term projects. It's a great question. And uh, it may be interesting. I think it is uh, useful to point out to our uh, listeners that, in fact, the long-term ecological research program at the National Science Foundation was really and remains a groundbreaking program. And this is because it anticipated and was built around the idea that continued funding would provide long-term benefits in a way that we don't see in other fields. And, and the reason in the environmental sciences that we need these long-term observations, is the reasons are several fold. And the first is that if you think of um, microbes or say algae living in a jar or a tree in the forest, the algae, right? Well, they can grow reproduce, live, and then die in the space of days or weeks. So if you study organisms that are short-lived, then the shorter time to study them could be okay. But if you study a forest with trees that last uh, decades, if not centuries, their life cycle, the changes are much more subtle and they're harder to, to, to see just because they take longer because of the life cycle of the organism. And so that's one of the major reasons and that we that we really benefit from these long-term ecological research programs. Yeah. But where can people find more information about your research, about the LTR websites, any social media that you could point the listeners to? Well, we have extensive websites. Uh, if you simply Google or use a search engine of your choice, um, 
for uh, LTER or long-term ecological research, you'll come right to the um, uh, homepage for that um, program and the uh, individual sites. Uh, if you if you said LTER Puerto Rico, for example, you'd get to uh, ours in in Puerto Rico. Okay. And uh, we also do have. Um, some uh, presence in social media, and I, I can't. Oh, we can. I'm sure <laughs> our listeners are savvy enough to find. Them. They're savvy find enough to. They can go I guarantee find you, them. when your when your episode goes live, our producers will find some of them too, because they'll be tagging them on Twitter. One final question is: you know, 2020 is the year that keeps on giving with so much going on in this world right now. In 2020, but it's expected to be above normal hurricane season. Uh, when you hear that from these seasonal predictions of uh, above normal activity, does anything perk up from your ears as a researcher in any way or anything that you're looking out for? Uh, absolutely. I'm watching for hurricanes. It's, it's a scary start to the year, I have to say. We had two named storms before the hurricane season even began. Yeah. And so... Uh, I'm a biologist by training, but boy, I pay attention to those weather forecasts and that is, and those weather events and to have two storms this early is not, not good if you live in the path of those or potentially. Well, on a little weather geek sort of trivia here, we, there was even a third storm, Cristobal, that, uh, which made history being the earliest third or sea storm on record, which, and then it just made history again in the last few hours or so, because it's the furthest west and north that a tropical depression has entered the, the country. I think you've got pressure records being broken in parts of Wisconsin because this thing made it so far inland. So we are off to an unusual start. Yeah. yeah. Bill, thank you so much for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Before I let you go, I've got to do one thing. We do something every week on Weather Geeks and it's called our Geek of the Week. We like to highlight a scientist superstar, a great geologist, or a weather weenie at the end of every podcast. This episode's Geek of the Week is Morgan Palmer. Morgan is the chief meteorologist at KIRO-TV in Seattle, Washington, and he is a certified uh, meteorologist both in terms of the American Meteorological Society and the National Weather Association. Morgan is most fond of winter and summer weather, but he feels every weather event he's experienced is memorable in its own right. If you want to follow along with Morgan, you can check him out on Twitter at MorganKIRO7. Keep geeking out, Morgan. And if you think someone is deserving of the Geek of the Week, be sure to follow the Weather Channel Weather Geek social media for more information. Bill, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. You're very welcome. It's been a pleasure Absolutely. to be on. Absolutely. And I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. And as always, thank you for listening to the podcast, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.